back to Potties. Every Friday we bring you an ode to the odd. That's Cal. And that's Meg. And this is our 13th episode. And it is Friday the 13th. Happy Friday the 13th. Yes. We should have the ch- 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 uh, 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 yeah. sound in the background but I don't think we can afford it. Yeah no probably not. Probably not. No. Too no. successful so this is, franchise. This is episode two out of two that's being released today. Yes. And we caught up and the other one, we talked a lot about movies, and we announced book club. Yep. And I failed to mention that we had made the change to the episode, and we had taken out the story of Elizabeth Battery, and instead we talked about the really creepy island of the dolls, and that was because we really wanted to dive more into the story of the Blood Countess, mm-hmm. so you can expect to see her in an episode... Soon. Soon. Yeah. Couple, first couple months of the next year. Yeah, definitely. So we can have more time to research it, really, and kind of hash it through. It's a very crazy story. And yeah, I think it's going to blow some minds. Mm-hmm. So for our 13th episode, we decided to do 13 weird little stories that each, on their own, really don't make and, up enough yeah. of an episode. So that's what we're going to do for Friday the 13th, is yeah. bring you 13 stories that didn't quite make the cut, but we still enjoy. Yeah. It's going to be fun. It's going to be, yeah. This They're is going to be... random. This one is not... Um, we have nothing written for this one. We are using various research articles mm-hmm. that we went through to each pick out our topics that we're going to talk about. So we're going to be kind of ad-libbing and summarizing the articles. And as soon as we can, we'll get a list up of the articles where we got the information yeah, from. Because we might have to rely on some direct quotes just to make this, yeah, you know, a little easier. That's going to make it fun. <laughs> you want to start? Let's see how much we mess up. No, you go ahead, because you okay. seemed really excited. And by excited, I mean disgusted. Okay, yeah. So for my first one, I want to start with the worst one. And it's not <laughs> worst in terms of, like, that it's not crazy. Worst in terms of it's disgusting. So I'm going to get this out of the way, because when I first read this article, it was literally triggering that my, was my gag the, reflex. That was where the, yeah, yeah, I looked over and you looked... But people need to know about this, yeah. so I'm gonna. Do they? Did they do? Do you feel better knowing this, knowing that it almost made you like upchuck? No, but that's the point of this podcast. Is it to bring you weird, random knowledge that upsets your stomach a little bit sometimes? I'm sure. <laughs> so the disgusting food museum. It sounds. It is very appetizing. much what it is. Yep. <laughs> that's oh, that's the, that's the sign that this is gonna be a great story. So Meg. Have yeah. you ever eaten bull penis? No, but they are a really popular dog treat right now. Oh, God. Ziggy used to eat them. Ew. Yeah. What about vomit fruit? There's fruit that does taste like vomit. Yeah. How about, oh, God, roasted guinea pigs or frog smoothies? I mean, I've heard of people eating frog legs, but... 
It's blended them. Smoothies <laughs> is no. Yeah, so these are just some of the many things oh. that you can check out at the Disgusting Food Museum in Malmo, Sweden, which aims to introduce visitors to a variety of snacks from different cultures. You can smell and taste different ones. The smell station includes such delicacies as surstroming, which is fermented oh, herrings. Oh my god, that's what Brandon Ferris opens in that video. <laughs> Did you see that one? No, I don't think so. Oh my god, we can we I wonder if we can play it. Can we he I don't know. I don't know. Okay, so we can put a link for it though. He's on Facebook and YouTube. Just if you type in Brandon Ferris and it's Swedish, so don't bank on remembering how to spell it. If you just type in Sir, S-U-R-S, it mm-hmm. should pop up for you. It's fermented... Herring. Canned herring. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's um, carbonated, Ew. and it explodes when you open it. I did it. see that one, just kidding. It was a Febreze yep. commercial, oh remember? Oh my gosh, yep. And it smells... So funny, yeah. So that's one the fir- how, how the smell station the, starts. How does it mention how like how do they keep the smells? Like how do they retain the smells so people no. like over time can experience them? No, I didn't include it. That's yeah, I don't know. Um, Something Hak- to research. Yeah, and report back. So more smells: hakarl, which is fermented shark, stinky tofu, durian fruit, and some of the worst smelling cheeses in the world. They can taste salty licorice, durian, sukalu cheese, Swedish caviar, and sentry eggs. Durian is the world's smelliest fruit, described by a food writer as a mix of onions, turpentine, and gym socks. Sukalu oh. cheese is made oh from God. the stomach of a baby goat filled with its mother's milk and tastes a little like gasoline. Oh my God, that's why. No, something that's. <laughs> Like gasoline, that should not be something you ingest. The Chinese delicacy century eggs, also known as hundred year or thousand year eggs, have a hint of ammonia attached to them. Century eggs? Century. I'm thinking to myself, what the fuck is a century? Is it a bird? What else lays an egg? I've never heard of this animal before. It gets worse. Ready? No. Okay, yes, actually, because this is. The museum employees have sampled about 50 of the 80 disgusting foods on display. Do you have to display. sample it to get a job? I don't think so. One of the worst ones, and one of the director's favorites, is Kasu Marzu, the maggot cheese from Sardinia. Wait, it gets worse, Mike. Oh no. It gets worse. He says, I absolutely love the Kasu Marzu. It's a beautiful exhibit. Excuse me. The larva can jump up to 15... Sorry, if six inches. Six inches. So you have to cover your eyes when you eat it. It's <laughs> they jumping at you. No. So they don't get in your eyeball? Is that a risk? Is that what they're trying to prevent? What I are they closing their eyes for? I don't know. Just because they're jumping. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. A few other notable foods included spicy rabbit heads from China, fermented mare's milk from Kazakhstan, an Asian a... wine made of baby mice and sheep oh eyeball God. juice. Don't worry, though. The exhibit also had several American foods, <clears throat> such as Rocky Mountain oysters, a.k.a. bull testicles, spam, mm. jello salad, and root beer, which this says t- 
tastes like toothpaste to many people who did not grow up on the carbonated beverage. What? I am so offended by that. How is that even possible? It's my favorite liquid. How can something taste that different? That's got to be something genetic. I call bull on it just not them... Not them being able to identify it from childhood. Yeah. Because even if you don't know that it's root beer, I mean, there's so many other things that it sort of kind of tastes like. Yeah, definitely. Oh. So that's the disgusting food museum. You're welcome. I bet there's probably some crazy contests. Yeah. Like how many exhibits can you eat without losing all of it? You have to have... Just thinking. Betty White could work there. <laughs> that lady could do anything. <clears throat> oh my gosh. What's yours? Okay, so this is actually a story that I really enjoy. It might it might be brought up in the podcast at another time. And it's the story of Mercy Brown, who was, I believe, called the first American vampire. I don't have it in front mm. of me. I'm just going off of uh, my brain. It's like a 50-50 chance. Okay, so we're looking at a time period of roughly 200 years after the Salem Witch Trials, and there's a new hysteria, because isn't there always? This time, it's vampires. Mm -hmm. So the issue is that this originated at the same time that the spread of tuberculosis was going on, and tuberculosis is also known as consumption. Right. Which is what they called it back then based on the fact that over time it consumed you. And mm. you were really left as like a, just a pale comparison of what you were before. And so this becomes a worry. And we've got a high death toll at the time. We have people are worried about being buried alive. We're still not knowledgeable about the germ theory. <clears throat> Excuse me. And how infectious diseases work and spread and how consumption was spread. So what they, basically they have, excuse me, people dying of consumption. And then they have them believing that they're being turned into vampires. Okay. So what ends up happening is the fear is that when they dig up the bodies and the bodies look more well preserved Mm -hmm. that's evidence that it's they're in the transformation process of Uh. turning into a vampire okay so what they do is to prevent this from happening to you know stop it before it starts they uh dig up the bodies that are in question and then they perform rituals based on whatever religion they're following but it usually involves um destroying some of the internal organs and usually burning them burning is a really normal thing to like rid yeah whatever it is that you're talking about and this tale talks about a specific family that was struck down by tuberculosis and it ended up resulting in the exhumation of the corpses of a family and it gets kind of graphic um but what happened was George Brown, the father, thought that something might be 
lurking on his farm. So after his daughter dies, his son gets sick and he's like, I can't lose everybody. And desperate to save the last person in his family, he gives the town the thumbs up to exhume those bodies we were talking about. And they discover two of the bodies are decomposed to what would be normal, but Mercy's body was noted as being oddly well preserved. Oh, dang. And despite being in a crypt. So she, you know, had the same treatment as everybody else. And it looked as if her hair and nails had grown, which is another thing that lends into the vampire mm. theory. Um, also, when they pierced her skin, only a little blood droplet would spring up, which if you prick a dead person right. and they bleed, they're not dead in this time frame is the thought and there's that a lot of sense, I yeah guess. i mean to, time, to, yeah to them they thought yeah. you should stop bleeding and i mean realistically if they've seen dead bodies they know that a body that's been dead has different blood because it started yeah. to coagulate so what they ended up doing was gathering Sorry. So they gathered all this information because I'm trying to summarize as I go. Basically, they decided that Mercy was a vampire based on these facts. And what they did was they um, explained how the weather there could have kept her body well preserved, which is a really well-educated guess on their part, but the townspeople didn't believe it. I mean, we're talking about superstitions still. So they panic, and what they do is they go through a ritual to basically get rid of Mercy's curse as a vampire, and they remove her heart, and they burn him, and then they made it into some kind of tonic that her sick younger brother drank in the hopes that, like, because if Mercy had infected him, somehow ingesting her life essence would cure him. Hmm. But unfortunately, it, it did nothing, and he died a few months later. And so the the exhumations that took place have been known as the Vampire Capital of America. Hmm. And it really became, like, the iconic, like, specific example of this fear that took right, place yeah. in this section of microhistory. And, I mean, there's, like, scientific things to it. I was actually just reading about it. It's not that our hair and our nail grows. It's that the nail beds actually shrink back. We lose Mm. water weight, I guess, like after death, which makes it appear, especially facial hair, because it's, if you have stubble Mm. and then the skin kind of pulls back, the facial hair is much longer, so it's much Mm. more noticeable. But yeah, so I'm almost positive she's referred to as America's first vampire. Dang, that's kind of cool. Yeah. I never knew that. Tuberculosis. Tuberculosis. Well, my next one is very random. The Unclaimed Baggage Center. This is one of my favorites. It's right up there with the TSA's Twitter account on confiscated (laughs) weapons and things. You remember that? There was a peacock. Mm -hmm. So this Unclaimed Baggage Center in Scottsboro, Alabama, is like this giant destination of lost luggage. They donate or trash most of what they get, but put the very best of them up for sale. And here's a list of some of the strangest things that they found. And I I wonder how hard it was for them, because if it's anything like the TSA's account, like having to squish their stories down into a two-page article, can you imagine, like, what stories they left behind? Right. So, for the animal trade, moose antlers, 
Okay. Giant tortoise shell. Okay. Snake skin. Yeah. A live rattlesnake. Okay. Bear skin packed in salt, which apparently smelled awful. Oh, they were trying to cure it, maybe? Yeah. A zebra pelt and 50 vacuum-packed frogs. This all has to be, like, more modern, right? Yeah. Like, okay. That's... Wow. Right? Odd clothing. So many animal-based products. That's unsettling. Yeah. Clothing. A Versace gun straight off the runway. (laughs) Wonder how much that one sold for. Right? A Vegas showgirl costume. An aluminized fire suit. A full suit of 19th century replica armor. Wow. That was heavy. Yeah. Valuables. A 5.8 carat diamond set in a platinum band, which was hidden in a sock. A 41 carat emerald. A platinum Rolex valued at $60,000. A painting tagged at $60 that was worth $25,000. That's probably what that freaking Versace gown was worth. Right? Oh my gosh. Government property. A camera from the space shuttle, which was returned to NASA. Oh, and a missile guidance system for a fighter jet, which was also returned That's to its really rightful That's really unsettling owner. that that was ever... Right. How do you... Near an airplane. That? Yeah. Definitely. That too. And then some fun mementos. Someone's ashes. That's probably really common. Yeah. An engraved headstone. A coffin. And a 4,000-year-old Egyptian burial mask and a shrunken head. Can you imagine being the one to open that? The shrunken head one, no. The burial mask one, I feel like if I had opened that, I would have been mind blown that something that precious was not only taken through luggage check-in, but lost and left behind and either never claimed or like a 41 carat do you think siri will tell us how many carats 41 carats is she's usually really bad at this stuff how many carats 41 like, carats how, like how how large is a 41 oh, carat yeah jewel? probably not she'll be like probably here's not. a link siri how large is a 41 carat diamond here's what i found yeah yeah no she gave me a pdf to download yeah she's not helpful anymore no she's not it's like she's scared of Alexa or something. Right. All right. Well, that was... Weird. Weird. <laughs> What's your next one? So, uh, that was me punching the thing. So, Cal uh, kind of, or uh, you kind of really wanted me to do this one because you remembered me telling you this. Um, I found out on top of finding out that narwhals were real, um, I also discovered that camel humps don't contain water. Which, I don't know what I was thinking the whole time, but uh, did did anybody else out there think that too? Just me? Okay, alright. So, so the humps are not made of water. Instead, the the humps store fat, which allows them to traverse the desert for days when they don't have food. Mm -hmm. So it's an energy source. They can survive a week without drinking water, which is... Wow. crazy to me given how hot yeah their homes are um and then they can go several months without eating i suppose if like the humps are sufficient enough to have hmm. yeah that's also crazy to me right? i don't know how long like 
now it makes me wonder what animal can go the longest without eating. Hmm. We need to have so many follow-up conversations. So anyway, so they can store up to 80 pounds of fat per hump. And then when they store into the fat, the hump decreases in size. And then they become upright again after the camels eat and sleep. That's wild. And so they go up and down. Like, that's just, that's so crazy. (laughs) Okay, so then what ends up happening is that the fat conducts heat more gradually than water, and they have thick fur on their backs and then thin fur everywhere else to help insulate them from the sun's rays. Mm. And the fur everywhere else is, like, really thinner. And if you've ever... They have camels sometimes at, like, the Renaissance festivals and stuff. Yeah. They're very soft. (laughs) Very soft. And then, so, also, the thinness of the fur everywhere else allows heat to escape their body, which, Hmm. I guess, makes Makes sense. sense. And so, they do drink a lot of water, despite the fact that they don't store it in their humps. Um, They cool down at night when the temperatures drop, and they use the air that it inhales and exhales to create water vapor. Hmm. They, and it says, whatever you do, try to avoid being spit on by a camel because their spit is a mix of saliva and the contents of their stomachs. So it's vomit spit. And if they're spitting on you, they're threatened. It smells. Oh, you had to go there. Yeah, it smells. And that's not a... mm. Don't get too close to that giraffe cage now. (laughs) And it says that they can also close their nostrils to prevent sand from entering their bodies. Hmm. Which is so cool. That is cool. And it makes sense. Yeah, it it does. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Neat. Yeah. Yay, camels. Yeah, that's really cool. That's, I just, I find instances of how animals are built's not the correct terminology but like how they function mm-hmm. and how they've adapted to their environments it's crazy that their bodies can do that yeah definitely i mean it makes sense when you know stress medical conditions diet mm-hmm. in in terms of what foods you eat and exercise and all that we store fat all over our bodies yeah but just being a giant lump on your back that shrinks in size depending on, you know, how much you've exerted yourself is... That would look so creepy it, as a human. Exa- <laughs> oh my gosh, that's what nightmares are made yeah. of. So what do you have next? Next I have Smokey Bear and the rise of him, where he came from. Oh, okay. I've always liked Smokey Bear. Yeah. I have a pajama set. And one time I went to an antique store and I walked out with a little figure of him yeah. from like forever ago. And I'm 99% sure it's lead paint. <laughs> but I love it. It's fine. He's fun. So Smokey Bear became a poster child birth during World War II. Oh, really? I thought it yes. was an earlier thing. <clears throat> yeah, no, I had no idea. But it was made possible by the wartime paranoia about the possibility of a Japanese invasion of the continental United States. At the time, a lot of Americans were worried that explosive devices might spark forest fires along the Pacific coast, for which the U.S. was hardly prepared for. World War II was a tricky time for forest fighting. In the face time of in the face of wartime rationing, it became harder and harder to get a hold of modern firefighting equipment. Foresters feared that the forest fire problem might soon get out of hand unless the American public could be awakened to its danger, was said by a researcher on it. 
the shelling, so there ended up being a shelling and it sparked a national invasion panic. And the state forestry services and the forest service joined the newly created war advertising council to create the cooperative forest fire prevention program in 1942. The program focused on public service advertising and posters urging the public to aid the war effort by preventing forest fires. They were splashed all over the country. No wonder they wanted to use a bear to associate with it because that name would be impossible to remember. A bear is much easier. Well, so apparently in 1944, the program enlisted a famous poster child, Disney's Bambi. But Disney only lent the character for the effort for a year. What? And then they wouldn't let them use it anymore. So after that, an artist, Albert Stale, known for his illustrations of adorable animals, stepped into the picture. He created the first poster of a cartoonish bear pouring water on a campfire. The Forest Service named the character after a former firefighting legend, New York Assistant Fire Chief Smokey Joe Martin. That's I never knew who so he was named cool. after. I right? love that he's named after somebody. Mm-hmm. In 1950, a real-life bear cub saved during a forest fire in New Mexico was adopted by the Forest Service, given Smokey's name, and brought to the National Zoo. During his 26 tenure at the zoo, Smokey Bear became a national icon, and the words, only you can prevent forest fires, a nationally known catchphrase. Such a cool origin story. Yeah, that's really neat. I was always more of a Scruff McGruff person. (laughs) (laughs) Probably just, you know, our generation, but that's really cool. I love when you find out that everyday things or concept or items or have an origin yeah. story to them. Absolutely. Okay, What's so up next. I've already talked about my two my last three sort of go together. So I wanna tell you about a prison called okay. the Federal Penitentiary at Leavenworth, Kansas. And it's known for housing, having housed a lot of big baddies, big criminals, one of them being Machine Gun Kelly. Oh. And then in the early 20th century, there were some unusual people sent to jail for committing the crime of the Oleomargarine Act Hmm. of 1886. (laughs) So how did it get to the point where we have people trafficking butter and going to prison for it (laughs) well after the new york's u.s dairy company began production of an artificial butter Ah. in 1871 they wanted to regulate the shit out of it so it actually pushed congress to pass the act which imposed a two cent tax per pound on margarine and also required manufacturers wholesalers and retailers to obtain licenses to sell and distribute margarine. The fight for butter. The fight for not even real butter. I know. Margarine. I can't believe it's not oleomargarine act. Oh, I should have written that down. (laughs) That's your episode title. Damn, episode title. (laughs) Okay, so they've housed people that were convicted of this ridiculous act And some people in history were noted as having to pass the margarine off as butter. And other people tried to avoid the tax by reusing the stamps over and over again. So people were, like, really into avoiding this butter tax. Which, like, not that I'm, like, surprised, but, like, it's a two-cent tax on butter. (laughs) 
So anyways, what people would do is they would buy the margarine and then they would buy something to color it and they would color it themselves so it looked like butter. Mm -hmm. And then there was a federal margarine tax that came to an end in 1951. In 1967, Wisconsin, which is the dairy state, was the last state to repeal the restrictions on the sale, color, and manufacture of margarine. They just really (laughs) didn't want to let go. I just isn't that crazy? I don't like, even like butter, so it just blows yeah. my mind. But I the, so I love by history. Ni- by 1902, 32 states had bans on coloring the margarine yellow. Oh my god! So if you got caught, you would go to a federal penitentiary. Like this isn't just like some little podunk town right. where there's one jail cell and you mm-hmm. know the sheriff by name. Federal penitentiary for coloring butter. If they get to prison, they're bunkies. Like, what are you in for? You don't want to know. Yeah. <laughs> I tell you, but then I have to kill you. Well, I mean, Marge. they're butter knife. <laughs> it's, a, it's a new clue. Oh my gosh. It was, here, what's one of these guys' names? Joseph Worth and, oh, John McGonagall. His name is just so much better. So it was John McGonagall in the federal penitentiary with the butter knife. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right. So, my next one is how Stanley's X-Men were inspired by real-life civil rights heroes. I did not know this. Meg and I are huge I love Stan Stanley Man. people. We love Marvel. We miss him. R.I.P. Thank you for everything. I watch comic book men on repeat all the time. Mm. So Stanley drove home messages of tolerance and acceptance while rejecting demonization and bullying. Bullying. He said, those stories have room for everyone, regardless of their race, gender, religion, or color of their skin. The only things we don't have room for are hatred, intolerance, and bigotry. So that's the general idea he took to make the X-Men, mm-hmm. where if you guys don't know, it's about... Everyone can relate to it. Everyone can see themselves in these characters that he made. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, X-Men was introduced in September 1963. It's a team of teenage mutants led by their teacher and mentor, Professor Charles Xavier, who fought super criminals and other mutants led by Magneto, who were bent on the destruction of humanity. But rather than be a black and white battle between good and evil, the X-Men had a wrinkle. Mutants were hated by the quote-unquote normal humans they defended. Mm-hmm. Stanley said that he loved that idea. It not only made them different, but it was a good metaphor for what was happening with the civil rights movement in the mm-hmm. country at that time. Shifting the current issue and culture yep. to something different allows people to see it in a way that sometimes lets it sink in better. Yeah than whatever they're experiencing in real life. Mm-hmm. The metaphor extended to the characters themselves, with Professor X and his vision of harmonious human-mutant coexistence standing in for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., while Magneto's rigid attitude toward the defense of mutant kind reflected the philosophy of Malcolm X. So it was to- later said, let's lay it right on the line. Bigotry and racism are often are among the deadliest social ills plaguing the world today. 
it's totally never change. right it's totally irrational patently insane to condemn an entire race to despise an entire nation to vilify an entire religion sooner or later we must learn to judge each other on our own merits sooner or later if a man is ever to be worthy of his destiny we must fill our hearts with tolerance such a great quote lee was known as being more of a chronicler than an activist Later, the X-Men struggles in a world defined by system- systemic persecution proved malleable enough to outlast the civil rights era. Beginning in the 1980s and continuing through today, the X-Men have been adopted by those fighting for LGBTQ rights mm-hmm. who see the mutants' struggle for acceptance and equality as their own. And this was made explicit in the second X-Men film, X2, when the distraught parents of Bobby Drake, who was Iceman, ask him, have you tried not being a mutant? Which is a question that's painfully familiar to the generations of LGBTQ yeah, absolutely. youth. And then the comic book Iceman came out in gay in two thousand as gay in 2015. Was it a cover? I don't know if you remember reading it. There was a cover within the last, I don't know, however long, that was the first time... A LGBTQ couple was featured on the cover. They got married in it. No, was it an X Men? Oh, I wish I had thought to do research, but I didn't. I didn't peek at which articles. Um, I made them surprised. It was either X Men or it was Fantastic Four. I can't remember which mm, one it was. It was one of too. the two. So I was trying to sneak a peek at my next one because this, <laughs> this is a. I have a little. Uh, three-story one of my own that I had stapled that just makes me chuckle. So we talked about the oleomargarine axe, and then this is going to go into it a little bit more and connect to the third topic. So just uh, bear with me. So butter, (laughs) which seems like the most ridiculous thing to be talking about. But at this time, when we're talking about the Margarine Act, which put the taxes on the margarine and also prohibited people from coloring it, there were people who really, really hated margarine. Mm. They said that it threatened the family farm in the way of American life. Which seems somewhat excessive. Yeah. So, so people wanting to tint their product yellow butter, producers objected, claiming that yellow margarine fraudulently masquerading as butter was a deliberate ploy to deceive the public. Can you believe this? Like, it's just, I'm reading this, and... (laughs) and So, butter, at one time used to be pink so in order to solve the you know the color dilemma vermont new hampshire and south dakota all passed laws demanding that margarine be dyed in off pink color to make it easily identifiable as margarine and not butter wow so like we've actually had a time in history where we fought over the color of I was butter. Say, it seems very passive aggressive. Yeah, um, but the pink laws apparently were overturned by the time they reached the Supreme Court on the grounds that it's illegal to enforce the adulteration of food. Ah. So I guess that's why we don't have pink butter. And I'm kind of oh, glad that yeah. just seems really weird. I don't want pink butter. So people were all about coloring their butter, obviously. And then you reach the depression and the butter shortages of World War II, and people started to bypass butter 
and they went more for the margarine because it's made from de from hydrogenated vegetable oils rather than animal fats mm. and margarine was sold with an included capsule at this point so you have them doing two things you have them switching to a less expensive butter why am i still talking about butter and then you have these people actually putting dye capsules in oh for the people who want to dye the margarine to pass it off as butter and i get it you know you're, you're kind of it's like putting shredded chocolate on top of a coffee drink you know it kind of sure. makes it a little exciting i guess i mean statistically if you take how much we consume in terms of butter and margarine and it divided it by the population each person eats on average 5.6 pounds of butter a year That's so as opposed to the 3.5 pounds average of margarine hmm. and i wonder if this has anything to do with like the new evidence because margarine was like a fad food for a while just like cranberries mm. and you know all that other kind of stuff science is showing that the trans fats and margarine might actually be less healthy for you than the saturated fats and butter oh, so they're actually telling you to go back to <laughs> butter now despite like all the claims of butter being fatty and you oh, know man. all that so butter but yeah butter and it's there's a connection in here to uh genghis khan and uh i feel very unprepared but basically if i can remember correctly because this is my third one and i don't know if we'll get to it he was found they used to carry it in their like cream unprocessed product and they would carry it in a satchel oh and it would, I guess, turn it into butter. Hmm. And they traveled with it. So when they, like, invaded and conquered and were in war times, he introduced, essentially introduced this product to wherever where they were. Hmm. So there's that, like, loose con that loose connection just because uh, with the going back and forth, I'm probably losing people. <laughs> but who could pass up the chance to talk about butter. federal crimes against butter? Pink butter. <laughs> Learning more every day. So I decided to take a step in a different direction now and go with something animal related because that's my favorite. And I'm also going to give a special shout out to my mother-in-law because she's going to love this one. Hi, mom. So, such an ass. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go to the 1900s to a little farm in California for alligators. And at this alligator farm, you could ride them. It was very casual. Is there just... a weight limit? Or is it mostly just children? I think it's mostly just children. Yeah. So this place was opened in 1907 by Alligator Joe Campbell and Francis Ernest. The California Alligator Farm was resident to over a thousand alligators at the height of its popularity. This was obviously a time before animal rights activists. God. Photographs of a different time in our society reveal how the residents were able to enjoy the alligators, even letting their children ride on the farm's oldest residence. Yes, dear people who help run the town, I have some concerns I'd like to report about the house down the road from me. Right? No, sir, it's not cats. They don't have an excess of cats. No, and it's not dogs either. It's right? uh, thousands of uh, sharp teeth. Yep. 
And there's children there. Yeah. It sounds like a great idea. There's, you guys should either Google it or we can post pictures on Instagram. Just these kids riding the alligators. Like, it's no big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Just a little, like, thing around their little snouts. I love that the parents were willing to put their children, the smaller humans, on top of these animals, but didn't go on them themselves. Yeah. Yeah, so there's tons of pictures back from when it happened. Fraternities were known to sneak onto the farm and get up close and personal with the reptiles. And that was a blatant disregard for signs that they had put up. Oh my god, that's like hazing and pranks. Oh my gosh. The sign said... Do not throw stones at the alligators, spit on, punch, or molest them in any way. Oh, and you know that's one of those things where something happened that right. they had to pass that they rule. They didn't just dis- it didn't like begin there. Something mm-hmm. happened to trigger it. Yeah, and there were even performances for the visitors by the alligators. Um, there was I a hypnotist act. Can't. Oh, okay. Yeah. Did he put it to sleep, maybe? I think that's a thing. Right? So, unfortunately, the peel faded. Yeah. And it closed in 1984. It's amazing. That, which like, is still a pretty good a, run. A small child wasn't devoured, and then yeah. they sued or something. Right? So, that's, yeah. uh That's kind of crazy. Alligators. Okay. Alligators, yeah. What is it in Lake Placid? Is that crocodiles? I'm I so, so bad yeah. at determining the difference because yeah. one's freshwater and one's, one's salt, salt water. water. Yep. Okay. All right. So then, my last part is going to be where Genghis Khan comes in, and I think I found the part where it talks about him <laughs> and the butter making. But we'll skip to Genghis Khan because I don't know. This is my last one, and then. I have one more. You have one more, and then we have... And then we're gonna... And then we have... Share the last one, Okay. So, Genghis Khan, for people who are unfamiliar with him, is mostly noted as uniting Mongolia's tribes and supporting China's peasant economy by stabilizing taxes and establishing rural cooperatives. But isn't he also the one that was horrible? He killed so many people. Yeah, okay. So, I think... I feel like this, um... This research was a little biased. Yeah. Um, sorry. Wow. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling completely unrepaired or unprepared. So, where am I going with this? Sorry. Recording two episodes back to back. So, at their peak, the Mongols controlled up to 12 million square miles. And at the time that he was ruling, um, like, harems were were a thing. So it was really normal for there to be lots of women that he was mm. doing the deed with. Not surprising. Because he could. It gave him more chances to reproduce because right. women can only do it once every nine months. Technically, mm-hmm. guys could do it multiple times a day. Yeah. That's what she said. So... <laughs> <laughs> So it ends up being that unless we were to find his remains, which are still missing, to be able to test the bones, we'll never know for sure. But there's a chromosome that's passed down that's duplicated through the Y chromosome and only like certain abnormalities 
um, change it so it helps them track his lineage. Mm. And if we could find the bones, they'd be able to confirm it. But what they believe is their best, like, scientific guesstimate is that he has roughly 16 million descendants living today. Just crazy. Which it's... 8% of the men that live in the former Mongol Empire, where, like, it used Mm. to be then, today, have those Y chromosomes that are identical, and that's what identifies them. And it translates to 0.5% of the male population in the world, which doesn't seem like much, but again, that's 16 million descendants. Crazy. That's so crazy to me. Imagine just taking, like, a... What is that, like, DNA test that people send in the mail? Oh, yeah. Cheek, and it's like, you're Ancestry related to Genghis Khan. Yeah. yeah, I feel like that should just be something that they, like, put in, like, automatically as a drop-down menu. Like, <laughs> you know, do, you know, where are your families from? Like, what's your religion? Or whatever mm-hmm. other information. And then it's like, are you descended from Genghis Khan? I mean, there's <laughs> 16 million of you out there. Some of them have got to use online dating programs. Yeah. True. So that's uh Genghis Khan. Wow. Yeah, isn't Lots that crazy? Yeah. My last one is about beavers. <laughs> Such a good one. Idaho. Hey, <laughs> Idaho relocated beavers by parachuting them from planes. This is a real thing and I uh, love it. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Were they beaver-sized parachutes or normal-sized <laughs> parachutes on a beaver? Find out. It's very important for the landing. Yes, it is. So the year is eight. No, not eighteen. Nineteen forty-eight. That's a huge difference. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's three years past the end of World War Two, and we're at the beautiful area of Payette Lake in McCall, Idaho. And so a lot of people migrated to this little town. Really? Yeah. And in typical human fashion, they didn't stop to consider the natives, which in this case was the beaver population. Oh, okay. And it didn't take long for the residents to figure out that living with busy beavers wasn't going to be easy. So they decided the best bet for everybody was to relocate them, to get them to a new habitat. Which is better than some of the alternatives. Like a trap and release that we have today, except... Yeah. So the relocation. The question for the Idaho Fishing Game was where and how to move them. Luckily, Elmo Heater worked in the department at the time, and he had experience with the beavers. I don't know how or why, but What's he did. That, what, do you, what do you do in life to put that on your resume? Right. Beaver expert. That just sounds... <laughs> Which kind of... <laughs> <laughs> That's not good. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> so, Elmo knew that the Chamberlain Basin was the perfect spot for the beavers. It was ideal for them because of its remoteness and the dense vegetation, and it was also it also made it complicated to get the beavers to their new home in the first place. There are no roads leading into it, so cars were out of the question. They might have packed the animals in boxes and strapped them to donkeys, but apparently beavers and donkeys don't mix. <laughs> Which that, left <laughs> is that that's got to be only something that you could find if you like researched it and right? tra- tried yeah. it out. <laughs> So, so this left them with only one logical solution to drop them from one, planes. Just one. Just one. <laughs> just one, right? Uh-huh. So it ended up that there was a large surplus of parachutes left over from World War II. Elmo also knew this for whatever reason. So the plan seemed to be coming together. You could get the beavers out of the community and move them to where they'd be happy and do good. 
and get rid of the excess parachutes. So he designed a box that would fit a beaver and open upon impacting the ground. Then he tested it. First he used weights, then he found a male beaver, named him Geronimo, and started regularly dropping him from a plane. <laughs> Which that poor little beaver must have been All so scared. The doctor. Yeah. Do we? <laughs> okay, so once he was confident the plan worked, Elmo made Geronimo the first official transplant and sent three female beavers with him. So thereafter, 76 more of the little critters followed along him. All but one of the skydivers survived the trip. (laughs) Yeah, and went on to work wonders for the natural habitat of the basin. And say what you will about the plan, it worked. And now we can all say that it rained beavers. The one instance in history where we actually were conscientious of... Right? We took a second to be like, hmm, you know what? That's right (laughs) so our last one is a fun one also animal related i guess i should have changed those up a little bit but that's fine no (laughs) that's like one that's exactly what folder you went for yes so kale's really intrigued about this one it's the tale of the carnivorous cannibal hares of north america which it's funny because my mother-in-law has a pet rabbit and every time I pet her, she'll, like, jerk or, like, grunt. And I pull my hand back because I'm scared she's going to bite me. Mm-hmm. And they laugh at me. They're like, why are you always doing that? I've seen Monty Python. Well. Some bunnies <laughs> are crazy carnivorous murderers. That is, that's, that, that, that is, like. And this is my proof, Meg and Amanda and Anthony. There is a bun bun. Well, it's a hair. I guess it's not the same thing. That's the snowshoe hair. I don't know. I feel like I should know that, but I don't. I feel like that's probably something very few people know, unless they really like bun buns, which I do too, but... Yeah. Well, this snowshoe hare is a meat eater. It eats meat, Meg. I it It's... My brain meat. wants to conjure up an image of, like, a little bunny at a bunny-sized table, like, eating, like, a little prime rib off of the table <laughs> like that YouTube person does with his hamster. Oh, my gosh. But I know it's not delicate and precious like that. You know. No. They did a study on them. and Cannibalistic. You know <laughs> it's not going to be good when that word is in the title. Yeah, so it found that not only did they eat from the carcasses of small birds, but also from lynxes and owls. And not only that, they ate each other. Before or after they died. I feel like that's... Mm, I think after. After, so kind of scavenger-like. I mean, that's... Yeah. I mean, that's kind of how a lot of different animals go about it. Yeah, it looks like it suggested that they do it... Because they're scavenging for protein during winter months. That makes sense. They probably yeah. then they probably adapted at yeah. some point to introduce meat into their diet. And it, they don't have the teeth to rip off pieces of flesh, so they have to sit there and just gnaw off little bits at a time. Which is sounds so much more horrific than right. if it just devoured it. Probably, yeah. But when I think oh. of a bun bun chewing, I just want it to be like I think of like a the cute spicy little yogurt hay. drop. Yeah, hay. Like, no, spicy hay. Spicy Computer hay? cables. Oh, yeah. Yeah, spicy hay. Yeah. 
or Amanda's carpet. I love the pictures of them eating bed. dandelion or videos of them eating dandelions. That's my They're favorite so thing. Cute. And the way they clean their little face. Yeah. I like the big floppy eared ones. I just want to pet them. They're so, so like snuggly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we got some beavers. Some disgusting food museum. Disgusting foods. Yeah, Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan gave us butter, butter and 16 million men of the current world population. Yeah. And some dude named John McGonagall was guilty of yep. discoloring butter, butter and sent to federal prison. Not part of the 13 facts, though, but when I was looking for new research... To add to our incoming pile, they released, and by they I mean a museum of some kind, mm-hmm. um, they released 3D scans of the bust of Nefertiti to oh. show what she really looks like. That's cool. And it's slightly different. Like, if you're familiar with the bust, it's slightly different than, like, what the image that's common today. But she did look like a very beautiful person. Oh, I believe it. Had cheekbones. Mm-hmm. I really love the stories of Nefertiti and Cleopatra. and I'll recommend the Michelle Moran books about them. Yeah. There's something about reading a historical fiction, you know, bringing to life a character and kind of just guessing, you know, giving a rough idea of what their life was like makes it so much easier for me to absorb history. Mm-hmm. That just that different perspective is so great. Agreed. So we did do the episode title exchange. I'm just writing mine right now. I'm so glad I already wrote mine down because I'm starting to get tired and I forgot what I wrote. So, (laughs) okay. (laughs) Ready? Okay. And we still have to pick the winner from last, from the last episode. Okay. Who read first last time? You? I think so. I don't know. I don't know. Just go. You already read it. And on Thursdays, we're beaver doctors. I saw the supernatural, like, <laughs> meme with the teddy bear doctors, and I was like, oh, there's a mashup coming in. Hallelujah. It's raining beavers. Like the song. <laughs> That's so much better than raining men. Could you imagine how much of a mess right? that would make? Oh, man. I don't want it to rain men. No. No. It's going to rain something. Make it, like, beavers. <laughs> Pygmy puffs. Yeah. Tribbles. Yeah. Meatballs. I don't. That feels like it would be really gross. I mean, I loved that book as a kid. Those illustrations were amazing. The movie was horrendous. I never saw it. Shouldn't. I shouldn't have. Shouldn't have watched it. <laughs> now you learned. Well, and I still haven't seen Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Same. But if anybody's watched it and has a review, I've heard a review from one person I know. And I heard that it was really good, and Guillermo del Totoro did it. So I have, like, no doubt that I'm going to like it, it, but... Yes, I need to see that. Yeah, definitely. Mm Mm-hmm. So, episode 13, we will see you back here next episode Mm -hmm. on the 20th. Yes. And we'll be back for a creepy, kind of, sort of, weird, off, uh, normal... Christmas topics like Krampus. Yeah. Bell Snickle. Bell Schnickle. Schnickle. Yes. Schnickle. <laughs> Should be able to pronounce it better. And I think that's it because we did a lot of our catching up and everything in the previous episode. We've never done two back to back, so I feel like we don't have as much to talk about. Yeah. True. But um, 
yeah, so then we, next week's episode, haven't picked out the topics yet, so we can't give you a teaser. I have no idea what I'm going to pick. It's Meg's birthday. It's my birthday. So she gets to decide. The day, yeah, the day that it airs. And so I have to pick out three topics that really appeal to me. So they might not have anything to do with each other other than I'm picking them, but mm. I'm excited to try yeah. and narrow it down. It'll be good. So, yeah. Yeah. So we hope you enjoyed this Friday the 13th random episode and uh, all the closing stuff. Ditto. Copy and paste. We have social <laughs> yeah. media. Patreon group. We're doing mm-hmm. a giveaway for Friday the 13th. Yes. Follow us on Instagram where we'll be doing a giveaway We'll be doing one on Patreon. Mm-hmm. We do have social media everywhere. We have a custom domain. So email us shit. Yep. Make it worth the extra $6 a month we pay for having an awesome yeah. email address. Cal? Send us on Email? Podities at an ode to the odd.com. Yeah, send us stories, feedback. Feel free to correct us. Be yeah. nice. Yeah. Yeah, please. And we will see you back here next week for a surprise episode yeah Until then seek out the strange and learn something new bye bye